You are tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. It was a bold move. Mayor Mitch Roth, in his State of the County address, urged the governor to declare an energy emergency. The call came as the price of gas soared and out of concern that green energy projects should be fast-tracked to reduce our reliance on oil. The governor is reluctant to have the Public Utilities Commission speed up its review of renewable energy projects. We talked to Mayor Roth yesterday afternoon about why he still believes every effort needs to be made to get the green projects in place faster. We don't know how long it's going to be before our oil prices come down and we're dealing with a crisis on climate. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why we should be looking at this emergency. You know, one of the things that I mentioned in my letter to him is that we have over 50% of our people living Alice, asset limited, income constrained and employed. It's very concerning when you hear people who were used to paying maybe $40 to fill up their car now looking somewhere in the neighborhood of $70, $60, $70 to fill up their car. Their electricity bills for their housing are going up by 20%. They have to think about feeding their kids. They have to think about paying their bills. They have to think about a lot of different things. And, and you're now making decisions that we really shouldn't be making. So the governor made some good points that we need to work on our backlog. We've been working on our backlog for PV systems. We've been you know, trying to speed up our entire permitting system and you know we're getting there. We're also making recommendations to people to conserve energy and to be you know thoughtful about what they're using because you know a lot of our electricity is being made with fossil fuels and and that's the reason why the prices are going up and so we have the ability to get to 100% of renewable energy that we make here, which has several benefits for us. One, you know, we're keeping the environment clean. Two, instead of sending dollars outside to get fossil fuels, those dollars rotate through our system. And so there's a lot of reasons why we should be doing this sooner rather than later. Our state has a, a deadline of 2045. We can move that deadline up a couple of years, just a couple of years, very easily on Hawaii Island and the rest of the state. And so a lot of people look at just the projects that were in front of the PUC on our island. I'm looking at the projects for the whole state because it impacts everybody here. I know I had pain at the pump when I gassed up my little car, but I don't drive very far. And, and for the folks on the big island who have to commute you know, from Kona to to Hilo, those gas bills just must be staggering. They are they are staggering, and you know the county pays some of those gas bills as well and uh, diesel bills. One of the things that we've done is we've made our our bus free on on the Big Island. So you used to pay two dollars a fare. Now you can ride from one side to the other. And so, you know, we're encouraging people, whatever way is possible, whether it's carpooling, whether it's, you know, conserving energy, to think about, you know, what they're doing and to think about the environment. And, you know, we're looking to see what Kauai has done. It's in a better place than the Big Island is just simply because of its size and, and what it's been able to do, the cooperative over there. Well, we have a couple of things planned out um, as well for our island. Um, we had a meeting today. We're looking at you know, um, our wastewater, we have to rebuild our wastewater. We may be able to get uh, some kind of fuels out of our wastewater system. We're looking at our solid waste where, you know, we may be able to get fuels that are running our buses. And right now, the Big Island has, according to Tahiko, uh, 60% of their electricity being made by renewable energy. And so I, I think very easily, if you, you look at what we have online, I think we need 185 megawatts to make it to 100%. I think we're at about 100 right now. We have a solar farm coming on with about 40 megawatts. Um, we have wind power, which is another 30. We have PGV geothermal, which is another 20. And then you know, there's other projects out there that gets us over. And then we have biomass, which is another one that's possibly get us over the top as well. We're thinking about energy as a portfolio. And we did say to the governor, look, if it's cheaper to make it with renewable fuel and it's carbon neutral or even better carbon negative, then we should fast track it. And so, you know, I was talking to somebody working on the Oahu wind farm, actually one out in the ocean. They've been working on it for nine years. They're going through all of the federal hoops that they have to jump through. A lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of hoops that these energy sources, they have to jump through before they even get to the PUC. And so we're thinking that if we can speed up our end anywhere possible, and the county's doing it, 
where we can. We think the PUC is the next place that we can really move projects. There's a lot of different options. And so when people say renewable energy, we're open to look at all of them as long as they're going to be cheaper to make than fossil fuel, and they're going to be carbon neutral or carbon negative. In the State of the County Address, you know, you also talked about the need for affordable housing. You know, we saw what you folks did with the tiny houses there to help with the the homeless problem. Uh, Anything more uh, you can share with us on that? We're looking at different ways to increase our pipeline for affordable housing. Really what we want is workforce housing. We want to make sure that the housing that we're building are built for people that live here, our local families. We know that we need about 15,000 affordable housing units before 2025. When we came in, there was uh, a little over 1,000 in the pipeline. We now have over 5,000 in the pipeline. That makes some people a little bit nervous that we're developing, but if we wanna keep our local kids here and allow them to raise their kids here, They're going to need housing and quality kind of jobs. We're just coming off this next phase of the pandemic. You know, where are you looking at going at this point as far as tourism and and, and, uh, boosting other aspects of our economy just to get us going again? I think right now that is the key. Looking at COVID, I think today we have anywhere between 11 and 15 people, I think, in the hospitals, what I saw, um, which is way down from where we were. So we're, we're not too worried about COVID. We need to thinking about our local families, thinking about our economies, making sure that people are able to work, make sure that our different employers are are able to to do their things and and get our economy going. There's a lot of people that really are struggling still because of COVID. Again, we look at those ALICE numbers. We need to make sure that those numbers are coming down and giving local families the, the option of doing what they want to. And that's done by taking care of the economy and focusing on the economy. We just got through a hearing uh, this past week on the future of Mauna Kea, and there's a lot of hand-wringing over what that management model looks like. Any thoughts on that, on that, Bill? I'm not sure exactly what has come out, but one of the things I saw, it was very disconcerting. I don't think anybody wants to get rid of astronomy, whatever side you're on it, but I think when you look at the bill that was in front of the Senate, it was a flawed bill. There's certain things that need to happen in the next couple of years, negotiations on the leases and, and things like that, that if you don't have that, you could be endangering the future of, of astronomy. And so I, I think you need to have a couple of people, uh, an agency that's looking at it. And so right now, UH is probably the best um, agency to do the negotiations because there's nothing set up in that bill to, to say who is going to negotiate those leases, who is going to take in the decisions that that need to be made in the next couple of years. And if those decisions aren't made, you jeopardize all of the astronomy. And that's, again, we talk about our our economy. That's $100 million to the big island. That's food on, on people's tables. And that's, you know, a lot of those families are local families. That was a conversation we had with Hawaii Island Mayor Mitch Roth about his big idea to fast-track renewable energy products, uh, projects and help strengthen our resiliency and economic future. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. You know, on Thursday, Governor David Ige will launch the celebration for the 175th anniversary of Washington Place, the former home of Hawaii's territorial and state governors. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're diving into the history of Hawaii's White House. It was built in the early 19th century for the Dominus family, but while voyaging to China to purchase furniture for his mansion, Merchant Sea Captain John Dominus was lost at sea. That forced his widow Mary to become a landlady, renting out suites in her home to support herself and her teenage son. 
One of her first boarders was American Commissioner Anthony Tenike, who is credited with establishing the American legation on the property, which is similar to an embassy. He's also the person responsible for giving the home its name. After more than 160 years as a center of Hawaii's social and political life, most of us are familiar with the home's name. But do you know why Ten Eyck named it Washington Place? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareedHawaii.com. It's not Middle Street, and it's not Ala Moana. It's the stop closest to the Capital District, ideally to serve the employment hub for government workers. Voila. And there you have the Rail City Center stop at South Street. This morning, we talked to Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation Executive Director and CEO Lori Kaikina about the plan to pause the route there until we have the money to complete it to Ala Moana Shopping Center. Here's Lori. Our plan is still to get to Ala Moana, but what we are doing is amending the contract with the federal government. We had a full funding grant agreement with them in exchange for the $1.55 billion. It's the 20 miles, 21 stations, and the Pearl Highlands parking garage. So we are just amending the federal portion and stopping short to Civic Center and deferring the Pearl Highlands parking garage. So we're still going to do it. That just has to be done other means, whether it's with local funds or with all of the Biden infrastructure bills, there's other opportunities for federal funding, not with FTA. If you could just get that out to your listeners to make it so, so clear, we are still doing the full scope of the project. In regards to ridership, though, I'm not the expert on it. We have our planners here and also in conjunction with DTS. The effects of the ridership of temporarily deferring the Pearl Harness parking garage, they estimated at about, there's 1,600 stalls, but they estimated about 2,000. So I think the assumption is we're still gonna do the H2 on-ramp and the bus transit center. So people will hopefully, instead of driving to the Pearl Highlands parking garage, get out of their cars, get on the bus, get to the bus transit center at Pearl Highlands and then transfer to the train. With respect to pausing at Civic Center, I don't have those numbers, Catherine, uh, what the effects are, but it is very critical that we get to Ala Moana because that's where the main bus transit center of the island is. But we are working with DTS to make sure the interconnectivity is there So if the people want to get to the main uh, employment hub of downtown, they get off at downtown. But if they want to go further, they can either get off at downtown or Civic Center. And by the way, Civic Center is Halikawila itself. I see some comments um, on the newspaper. People are saying, where the heck is that? So it's Halikawila and South, right where the Toyota Servco is. And so there's going to be bus connectivity in both downtown and at Civic Center, for riders that need to get all the way to Waikiki, UH, or the east side. Oh, but I, I'm sorry, I don't have the numbers for the ridership on stopping short temporarily at Civic Center. Well, I can see maybe some concern that people would have. Okay, I got to get out of my car, yes. take a yes. bus, yes. get on the train, correct. and then correct. get on another bus. Correct, correct, correct. That's fair. That's why I can't stress enough we're going to get to Ala Moana. We just have to find different means of funding. And so what's it going to take then to, to, to you know, get to the Civic Center? Because folks are, are, are wondering, Civic Center, where is that exactly, <laughs> right? And, and you're looking at this, though, as, as an employment center, government workers. You've got, yes. you know, the capital district down there. Correct. Based on what our projections are for funding, and the main source of funding, it's right, it's the FTA, the full $1.55 billion, the GETTAT from the state, on the state side, that takes up about 83% of our funding. 
Then we have the 214 million from the city subsidy that's capped, and then now uh, council passed December of last year the new source of funding, the city TAT. Um, so there's a three percent that the city can charge for the first two years. We get one percent of that three percent, and then in perpetuity, it's the 1.5 percent. Now we've made some assumptions because it's a brand new funding source on what that would be um, growth-wise, and we've also had to make assumptions on on the GET, TAT, the original Act 1 funding, and our percentage of growth is based on actual collections for the GET and TAT on the state side. So we're projecting with the new city subsidy, I'm sorry, city TAT is about $480 million until 2030 or 2031 when the project is supposed to be POW. We are not assuming any opportunity of leveraging that TAT for bonding. We can. We can do that because this is the first time that we have a funding source in perpetuity because the Act 1 funds ends in 2030, so you really can't use it as leverage for long-term financing. So with all of those buckets of funding, we feel we have enough funds to get to the Civic Center station. That's why even some of our prior board members or even people in the community say stop at Middle Street. We have the funding to get past there and we need to get past there because I think I've said it on your show before, even um, Director Morton, Dillingham, you have to get past Dillingham, which is the congested area. I think even some board members, past board members have said, well, do an express lane. Well, when you do an express lane just for buses, the cars still need to squeeze now into one less lane. So we have to get past the Dillingham corridor. So that's why we feel the Civic Center is still a functional system, especially with the interconnectivity of the bus from DTS. And again, the goal is we're still going to get to Ala Moana. You talk about Dillingham. So what's the snapshot there? So, yes, we have all of the designs done, 100% designs done and approvals from the city departments and third-party utilities from Ivale all the way to the end, Ala Moana. Those designs are completely uh, done. We did put out a contract from Ivale to Ward Avenue uh, for utility relocations only. So we awarded that in January we anticipate notice to proceed in the June timeframe. Um, Coluccio, Frank V. Coluccio was the contractor. I think it's about $217 million. So that's just for the utility relocation. For the Dillingham corridor, the design should be done within the next um, month, couple of months, and we actually are going out to procurement shortly within the next couple of months, and we would like to award before the end of the year. Again, that's just the utility relocation in the Dillingham corridor. The city center guideway and stations procurement, and this is why I say we're committed to going all the way to Ala Moana. I want to do one contract for the entire segment from Middle Street all the way to Ala Moana. The base bid will have to be Dillingham to Civic Center, right, because that's the, where the fundings that we have, and then additives. As we, we find additional funding, we'll add on the last two stations all the way to Ala Moana. When you talk about funding, you know, tourism is recovering yes. uh, faster than folks had expected. Yes. Do you think then we're, we're going to be able to meet our financial needs that tapping is- into the TAT? Yes, that is a very good question. So we're we're being conservative. We're basing it on our actual collections, like I said, for the GET and TAT. And GET, surprisingly, through the pandemic, pretty much held steady. There was a slight dip. TAT obviously dropped to zero. And when we started to recover, so last quarter, not, not this most recent quarter, the quarter prior, the GET and TAT, it was the highest ever since we started collecting. So I, I guess to your, to your question, it's recovering much quicker than we anticipated. When the new variant started um, increasing the numbers and Governor Ige told the public or the tourists stop coming, slight dip, 
slight dip in the TAT, but now the numbers, the, the, the last two months, so this coming quarter, we expect to surpass again the highest, to be the highest number since the collections of GET, TAT. So we're hoping it continues in the positive, but there's still inflation out there. We've taken into account in our numbers on the cost side, the inflationary numbers for COVID. There's still resource issues, bringing the equipment in, bringing the supplies and even staff. We've taken that into account, but this war with Russia and Ukraine was not taken into account when we came out with our, our numbers to civic centers. So we're, we're having to look into that right now. And actually FTA and their project management oversight consultant is here this week, physically here in Honolulu to help us with their risk refresh. And what that is, is they wanna make sure, Hart already did its own risk refresh you, you make a list of all the risks that you're possibly going to encounter for the rest of the project. And so they're coming in doing their own analysis to make sure we haven't missed anything. And so at that point, that's when the war is going to be taken into account. And, and we're really hoping that the effects of that are spiked now, but quickly goes back to the lower numbers. So you've got to uh, submit the financial plan, though, by June. By this summer. So that's a very tight schedule. So no ifs, ands, or buts. We need to get it to the recovery plan, which the financial plan is incorporated in the recovery plan to FTA by June 30th. But when you backtrack, we have to get city council approval. And, you know, there's at least a couple of readings for that. Prior to that, we need board approval. And there's a couple of hearings for that. So I'm hoping within the next couple of weeks, we can already start sending drafts to our permitted interaction group members of the board. We're already starting to send sections to the FTA, PMLC to start reviewing just to make sure we're on the right track. So come June 30th, it's not like we're submitting to them and they're blind, right? Getting a blind copy of the report. They're going to be step-in-step and hand-in-hand with us all along the way. And that was Hart CEO Lori Kaikina talking with us today about the path ahead for rail, the most expensive public works project ever in the history of Hawaii. Kaikina expects that the problems with the train's tracks and wheels should be fixed by the end of April. A specialized team of welders arrived in town last week, and work is currently underway. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Outrigger Hotels and Resorts, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land, outrigger.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm John J. Prendergast, author of In Touch. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to tune in to the inner guidance of your body and trust yourself. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Reality Check Today features a story about federal money, close to a billion dollars, for one of our Pacific neighbors, Guam. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Anita Hofschneider joins us today. Good morning, Anita. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're talking about Guam. It's a, <laughs> an area that we're, we're familiar with, full disclosure, because we have family there. Uh, but yeah, so tell us what this money has been set aside for. It's really interesting. Yesterday, I was watching these uh, budget briefings um, for the Department of Defense, and, and Guam kept coming up um, a lot, actually. There's um, nearly $900 million that's set aside to, um, or is being requested, rather, um, to beef up missile defense on uh, the island. And, and that's particularly important, according to some national security experts that I talked to, because China uh, is particularly good at um, missile uh, at missiles, and this is also something that's become increasingly um, important. They say, uh, in the wake of what's happening with Russia's war on Ukraine, uh, you know, you see the headlines with Russia 
um, using hypersonic missiles against Ukraine. And um, in Guam, they have a uh, particularly uh, good system already to protect against ballistic missiles. But um, what this funding would do would help strengthen defenses against uh, a broader variety of missiles. Yeah, and that area is of concern. You know, China's been talking about the treaty with the Solomon Islands. There's the issue uh, that China has with uh, taking over the, what is it, the Kuril Islands are near the Philippines. So uh, lots of uh, potential hot spots. Yes, and I think that's something that um, people are paying more and more attention to. The Biden administration had previously said that you know, the Indo-Pacific is a, a, a crucial region for them and that they were going to prioritize security in this region. Uh, it's something that's actually been a trend for a couple of different administrations. You know, under Obama, there was a pivot to the Pacific, and, and Trump also really emphasized um, defense against China. So what's really interesting is that, you know, you have uh, these island communities that end up kind of being the sites of where these defensive wants um, are, are going to be built up. And so I, I did talk to some people on Guam to see how they felt about that. Um, the governor declined to comment um, on some of the specifics because the exact locations of these facilities are still going to be worked out. Um, but there are some people who have concerns. You know, recently, um, the ballistic missile defense system that I was referring to, which is known as the FAD, um, was deployed to the island of Rhoda, which is in the U.S. Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. It's the northern islands, the northern part of the Mariana Archipelago, of Gu- which Guam is the southernmost island. And um, that was a surprise to some of the residents there um, who didn't realize that that was going to be happening. And so they said that they you know, kind of wish that as all of this um, buildup is happening, that they could get some better um, communication from the military because um, you know, it does affect them. Yeah, and... Uh- uh, you and I are familiar with Rhoda. I mean, the, the concern there is that, uh, you know, that ecosystem is still fairly pristine. Yes, a lot of these islands, including Guam, were sites of a lot of battles during the war. And you know, the debris and the bombs and the ordnance, you know, it still remains in many places. But Rhoda, um, also known as Luta, is kind of uh, unique in that it was not invaded by the U.S. when the U.S. was taking over um, uh, Japan-controlled islands. And so uh, it is it does have less invasive species, more native plants, and, you know, less, you know, pollution from the war compared to other parts of the um, islands. And it's also just less militarized in Guam. You know, in Guam, there's a lot of ha- happening with the military. Um, there is a new Marine Corps base that opened during the pandemic. There are plans to bring over um, people from uh, the troops from Okinawa. There's recently, um, there's just been a lot of buildup, not just on missile defense, but on all sorts of defense of Guam. And um, this is to a less, this does not, um, you know, occur on Rota. So it, it does, it has kind of raised some eyebrows in the local community, you know, just seeing the degree to which um, the buildup is occurring, as well as, uh, you know, the how how much it's affecting the rest of the archipelago as well. Yeah, I mean, there is obviously concern if, if uh, Guam has become more of a threat. Yes, and I, I will say, you know, the governor did say that, you know, her biggest concern is the missile threat against Guam. Um, you know, so I think that there are many people who are also glad to see how this, um, you know, buildup is happening, that the, that the U.S. is taking seriously the threat to Guam. I did speak with one um, security analyst at the East-West Center who said, you know, Guam is vulnerable because it's, there are many, um, you know, U.S. assets concentrated on a small area. And, and uh, he said that it's perfect for an adversary like China because, you know, China happens to be particularly good at missiles. So this underscores, you know, why the Biden administration is really prioritizing missile defense. All right. When this is just a a beginning, I think, of a potential $11 billion investment they're looking at. But thanks so much, Anita. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. Read her story online at civilbeat.org. Violence prevention takes center stage this week as about 1,000 people gather in Waikiki to acknowledge the efforts of doctors, nurses, social workers, and other healthcare professionals across our community. The Institute on Violence, Abuse, and Trauma, which has been around for two decades, just kicked off its 19th annual Hawaii International Summit. We hear from David Brown and Robin Rohr. Rohr is an advocate for healing and an author of 
the book Chicken Soup from the Soul of Hawaii. Brown is a liaison with the Department of Defense Health Agency. The conference covers a broad section of treatment plans across our community from children and families to veterans. Today we focus on some of the work happening to help our vets. So with the veterans track, I mean, what you're looking at is oftentimes kind of the, the transition process and bridging the gap. What do we do after the uniform is hung up? Now, that said, two years ago, they did have active duty folks doing some trainings and they had active duty attendees. But for the most part, how do we bring our veterans back into the fold to contribute to society? And, and they identify some of the difficulties with that uh, and ways to ameliorate that and, and have folks be fully functional who many times they are full functional. I'm in that category. I, I, I'm, I'm a veteran, I'm, I'm a disabled veteran, and I've crossed over and picked up a nice government job, and I'm continuing to focus on, on this. So I'm, I'm a customer as well as a, a panel moderator. You had it in your brain to come up with the special award. For a few years at Tripler Army Medical Center, we would have these behavioral health conferences, and we wanted to recognize and identify some people who were really doing some great work. And one was General Hank Stackpole, commanding general of the Marines, and great work he was doing with pain. Uh, Dr. Uh, John Henry Felix and great work he was doing with the Homeless Veteran Task Force, Judge Kubo and the Veterans Court. And um, what the IVAD has done is they've agreed to now recognize the great work of uh, John Henry Felix and General Stackpole and the Felix Stackpole Award. And, and what they're looking at is how do you contribute when the uniform is taken off? Not what you did when you were in uniform. And, and some of this, uh, Ms. Rohr will get to with regards to the Homeless Veteran Task Force. Um, we were trying to recognize at AMFETS two years ago, Judge Kubo, and that was canceled because of COVID. So IFAT has agreed to allow us to, to nest kind of in their award ceremony, and we'll be recognizing them. Carlos Santana will be recognizing from Macy Hirono's office. I mean, that's from the Hawaii Veterans Summit and AMFETS. Okay. And so, Robin, talk about how then for the first time in this award is going to be given to John Henry Felix. Well, it's very exciting. He's obviously very deserving. And people that meet him, even at age 92, are astonished at his level of energy, his level at showing up, and actually being a great humanitarian a philanthropist and a deep, deep, deep interest in uh, veterans' affairs, which have proven out in his vast resume over the last 70 years, and he and General Hank Stackpole have been friends and comrades and brothers in arms for uh, decades now, and establishing, you know, many, many important projects together, as David said, including the Veterans Homeless Task Force. Hank has an interesting story. In Vietnam, many, many years ago, when he was a captain, he had a catastrophic injury, and his leg was almost blown off, but he knew that if um, he had it amputated, which was the recommendation of the day, that that would be the end of his military career. So he opted not to have that happen, but he lived with chronic pain for the next 37 years. And he was able to overcome that chronic pain by looking into the integrative medicine toolkit, which are things outside of just pharmaceuticals, because he found out in his leadership over the previous decades that he needed to be very clear thinking, and pharmaceuticals would just really cloud his ability to do that. So he got involved in something called the biomodulator microcurrent technology, and there's so much research on diet and how it can alleviate chronic pain. When he found resolution with 37 years of chronic pain, he thought it was really important for all the veterans and active duty that were suffering just to be part of this expanding toolkit, if you will, that the military was providing. And in 2018, the Joint Commission, which oversees 22,000 hospitals, civilian and military, made a big recommendation, which is knowing maybe some of the limitations for chronic pain, which is uh, defined as over three months of pain, and that one out of five, I believe, 20% of the population deal with chronic pain. It became very clear that research was important 
for diet, for microcurrent technology, and his microcurrent device of choice was the biomodulator, but there are other things out there certainly also. But it was the notion of something non-addictive and non-toxic, and that became his mission statement in the last 20 years of his life. Another important marching order for John Henry Felix and General Stackpole is that they have a deep compassion for veterans. And when John Henry told me a decade ago that over 20-plus veterans a day were committing suicide, a lot of it pain-related, that's a horrifying statistic. And yet pharmaceuticals aren't always the answer. They're marvelous for acute problems. For chronic, often you have to get back to the cause, which is multi-layered. And so when you find integrative doctors, you realize that the intake often takes a couple of hours. It's not a seven-minute fix. So. Right. So, so, so people may not know that this exists and that they can get relief. The toolkit outside of pharmaceuticals has expanded greatly you know, in the last 25 years, and acupuncturists, chiropractors, nutritional therapists, the big go-to doctor of the day in California, which stays pretty cutting edge, is something called a functional medicine doctor. Why? Because, again, they look at the whole body, the whole human psyche, you know, the the whole picture. And it's not just, oh, you know, this post-surgical knee pain I've had Mm -hmm. for six years, you're not just treating the knee. You've got to look at the biochemistry also. And David, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I was going to say about, gosh, more than 10 years ago now, uh, 2010, 11, I was the acting director for creating the, what became the uh, Defense Suicide Prevention Office. And when we testified before Congress, I mean, back in those days, what people were looking at was the silver bullet. It's much more complicated than that. I mean, if you look at a slice of pie, your typical depression might be a certain component percentage of that. But there's so much more that makes up that dynamic component of why someone might choose or opt for suicide. So really then people just need to know that, you know, under this institute, you're looking at different things. You know, fortunately for veterans, there is this program and you're going to basically acknowledge that this week with this award. Yeah. And and I would be remiss if I didn't mention, I mean, the president and, and, and brainchild of all this is Dr. Bob Geffner, Robert Geffner, out of, out of San Diego, and uh, also uh, Dr. Sandy uh, Capuano Morrison. She's the CEO. So while they've had that two-year, I, I can't say hiatus, because it was virtual and they were still really busy working, you got to figure there's been tremendous turnover in so many different places, and these two are still standing and still keeping their teams together, and, and they're here, and they're going to be standing and delivering today and throughout the week. So. Okay. Thank you to them. And they're mighty visionaries of the highest quality to keep this all going during a pandemic and to be constant for 20 years. And because of the number of people showing up, almost a 1,000 folks now, you don't have to have had something dramatic, you know, a, a giant car accident that devastated your body or a suicide in the family. The Institute of Violence, Abuse, and Trauma deals with trauma in all of our lives. And during this pandemic, we've all realized just how traumatic life can be by just getting up in the morning and living through a pandemic. So now we have all these social workers, nurses, doctors, and so forth that are going to be at this remarkable conference at the convention center and bringing their seeking mind to expand ways that they can help their clientele, their patients reclaim their lives. That was Robin Rohr and David Brown talking about the 19th Annual Hawaii International Summit being held at the Hawaii Convention Center. It's being put on by the Institute on Violence, Abuse, and Trauma. For today's Backyard Quiz, we were testing your knowledge of Washington Place. Cruise down Baratania Street in Honolulu, and shortly after passing Punchbowl, look off to your right in the 300 block, and you'll see the dwelling constructed in the Greek Revival style. It was originally the home of widowed Mary Dominus, who rented out rooms as means of uh, financial support after her merchant captain husband was lost at sea. One of her early lodgers was American Commissioner Anthony uh, Tenike, who is credited with giving the home the name Washington Place. 
and he did it in a letter dated February 22, 1948, naming it after the first U.S. President, George Washington, in celebration of his birthday, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. After the naming, King Kamehameha III commanded by royal decree that the name never be changed. Washington Place later served as the home for Hawaii's territorial and state governors. And on Thursday, speakers and performances will celebrate its 175th anniversary. That's today's quiz. We didn't have any winners today. We got you on that one. But if you have an idea for the quiz, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the exhibit Treasures of Devotion, Human Connection in Secular and Sacred Art, featuring works from the museum's permanent collection, honolulumuseum.org. Ethiopia's government has turned the northern Tigray region into a virtual prison. Five million people, no way in, no way out, no food, no medicine, no electricity. The region has been under siege for almost 500 days. People are starving to death. How long can the world look the other way? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. With eight different climate zones and hundreds of unique species, Hawaii Island is well known for its rich ecological diversity. But it's also home to a mysterious underworld, a web map of lava tubes that contain undiscovered life. University of Hawaii at Manoa researchers Megan Porter and Becky Chong are part of a team that was just awarded over a million dollars by the National Science Foundation to explore this realm beneath our feet. They spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about what they hope to find. It's a big undertaking, Porter says, because Hawaii Island has more lava tubes than anywhere else in the world. I like to think of the island as Swiss cheese because there's so many lava tubes underneath your feet when you're walking around. And Becky, how big are these lava tubes? They can really range in size. Um, They tend to be just below the surface, so near, but they can range into these massive passages with multiple layers of rock fall along the bottom. But sometimes we actually end up going through these really tiny passages where we have to actually squeeze through and even line the floor with trash bags to facilitate our crawling through and slipping (laughs) through these pretty narrow passages. So it's a whole uh, network. Here in the station, I often joke that we're in a basement, and so I can spend my entire day without seeing the sun. What's it like to work primarily in a subterranean environment? I would say it's uh, quite an experience from a sensory perspective. Uh, We start the day off early in the morning and we get to our first field site and we just descend below ground and we're in these dark voids just using our headlamps to make our way through these passages and we'll spend several hours underground sometimes we'll even have lunch underground and then end up surfacing just before sunset and so oftentimes we'll we'll go days without really catching much daylight. (laughs) Yeah I think the really unique thing from the human perspective about these environments is There's very few places you go in your daily life that have a complete lack of light. It's a really almost spiritual experience if you're by yourself underground and you sit and turn off your light and have that sensory deprivation. Um, There's no sound. There's no light. The only thing you can hear is sort of your own breathing. One of the rare times you sit still long enough to hear your own heartbeat. It's really a unique experience, I think, that most people don't get in their day-to-day life. What you're describing to some people might be considered a a waking nightmare. But (laughs) when, (laughs) when you two talk about it, you have these huge smiles on your faces. When you first started working in these environments, was there kind of an adjustment to, as you said, this absolutely dark, quiet, still setting. I have to admit, so I've been caving. Um, I started on the mainland in in limestone caves uh, over 30 years ago. So I've been, at this point, I'm very comfortable underground. Uh, But I'll admit that when I started, it wasn't my idea. As an undergraduate in um, my first year of college, my roommate wanted to do it, and she didn't want to do it alone, so she signed us up for a trip. And it turns out she hated it, and I loved it <laughs> almost immediately. I just loved this 
the experience of going somewhere that that few people, if anyone, has ever been before, and that that sense of exploration and discovery um, got me hooked immediately. You've both just received a significant boon in order to further study this unique space in the island chain, but also in the world. What kind of creatures are you finding make their home in these almost alien environments? There's there's a whole range of, of really interesting um, animals underground that I th- don't think many people really know anything about, which is part of the reason we're really excited about this grant and, and able to do this research. They They range from spiders to plant toppers to assassin bugs uh, to relatives of water striders. I'm going to stop you. Assassin yeah. bug? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as the name suggests, it's a predator. So of, only of other insects. So no worries. They're not, they're not huge. But all of these creatures have hallmarks of having evolved to live specifically in these environments. They have generally lost their eyes. They're generally very pale to white. They tend to have reduced wings. They have very long appendages. So they're really unique animals that you you just don't see these sorts of forms in other environments. I think one of the other striking things is the number of different species that we actually find in these cave environments, which is really unique. On Big Island, there are 44 currently described cave species. And through our research, we're finding that there's a lot more diversity and kind of distributions to be uh, explored in terms of where this biodiversity exists. And um, in addition to all the different lineages that Megan just talked about, we're also interested in seeing how these different species are interacting with each other across these landscapes. I grew up on Hawaii Island, and I've been in in lava tubes a handful of times. I know people who have them on their properties. I know people who uh, visit them semi-regularly. But for me, they're still a largely mysterious space. What is there in scientific record about these cave systems, even just how far they range, do we know where they are, but also, again, the, the creepy crawlies <laughs> that call them home. The island of Hawaii in particular is really interesting because you still have active volcanoes forming lava tubes, all the way to some of the older volcanoes where lava tubes have started to weather away. And um, we see this whole range of systems in different ages, which is really interesting. But they're all really tied to what's going on on the surface. They are dependent on, on roots from trees above coming into the system. So they're very tightly linked to the surface and, and very tightly linked to, uh, in particular, the, the native ohia tree, we think is, is critical as a food source for these systems and all the creepy crawlies that we find there. Yeah, and I think kind of what we know about the history, although we've studied uh, Hawaii from a geological perspective for a long time, these cave-adapted fauna hadn't really been discovered until just 50 years ago, which is kind of shocking. People didn't really expect to find such diversity in the first place. And it turns out that once we started looking, that we were finding a lot. And even now today, when we go and we go on our expeditions, we're finding new range extensions or, you know, back in 2019, Megan discovered this assassin bug. You discovered the assassin bug? (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, so the the work on on, um, the island of Hawaii, actually, it's fairly recent. Um, You know, these cave animals, insects, were really only discovered and described starting in the early 1970s. So we're talking about 50 years of work, maybe. Um, And there was originally uh, sort of this assassin bug described from one of the first systems uh, documented really well in terms of biology. But that was the only place that we really knew that it existed. And through our work, we've, we've been finding it in lava tubes all over the island. And so one of our big questions is, is it the same species or not? We think it's it's probably a different species. And then how is it getting from cave to cave as, as these lava tubes form? Are they, are they moving from cave to cave? Are they going above ground? Some of them go in and out of the caves. So there's a lot of complexity there, I think, that... Mm. that we're, we're really starting to investigate. Mm. You talk about Hawaii Island and the different geological 
time that you can document in a different cave system as you start with a really young mountain like Kilauea, which is still erupting, towards the older mountains and the older spaces on the island like Kohala. Could you extrapolate that out even further and look at the rest of the island chain and kind of project what you might find in a lava tube on Maui or even here, just outside the city? Yeah, I think um, one of the interesting ideas that came out of the the early work, earlier work that really described these systems is the idea that the ecosystem in a lava tube has a life cycle. So there's, you know, the initial formation when that habitat becomes available, there's, you know, and, and communities of insects move in. And then over time, because they are tend to be shallow systems, they weather away and those habitats disappear. So one of the things that the island of Hawaii provides is that full time scale for us to look at, which then does allow us to sort of predict what we might find on the other islands that are older and, and where those systems are more weathered. Yeah, I would say that we're using uh, Hawaii Island as our kind of experimental playground, if you will, where we have volcanoes of different ages representing larger land masses, but also each of those volcanoes have gradients of different flows of varying ages. So that also allows us to do really fine scale comparisons about how biodiversity or how these creepy crawlies differ as these habitats change over time. And we can take one snapshot and compare across both the younger and to mid and older volcanoes and lava flow systems to see that. And ideally, our goal is to eventually extrapolate and look at how that biodiversity scales across the archipelago. That was a UH Mono professor Becky Chong and Megan Porter speaking with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about what wonders may be found in lava tubes on Hawaii Island. does it for us today. Tomorrow, Hawaii Public Radio kicks off our spring membership drive. What do you like about what you hear on our radio station? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.